Hello, and welcome to the JSGC Policy Podcast. Here at Joint State, we research policy topics within the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and discuss them. Today, our conversation will focus on recycling. Thanks for joining us. I'm Susan Elder. Today, I'm here with our Executive Director at Joint State, Glenn Pasowitz. Hello, Susan. And also Brian DeWalt, who is our sound engineer and co-host. Hi, everyone. Today, we are joined by Grant Russell, who is project manager for Senate Resolution 285. Thanks for joining us today, Grant. Thanks for having me. Glenn, before we jump into our conversation about recycling, could you give us a little bit of background about SR 285? Sure. Senate Resolution 285 of 2022 was sponsored by Senator Gordoner, and it directed us to conduct a study of the public and private recycling infrastructure and operations in Pennsylvania. The public policy of recycling in Pennsylvania goes back to at least the late 1980s. And from the general public standpoint, recycling has become integrated into our societal norms. It's a completely normal thing that people would do these days. But there's a very large infrastructure and economy that operates right on the other side of the familiar curbside plastic bin. And this report takes a comprehensive look at that whole ecology of recycling in Pennsylvania. Thank you, Glenn. So Grant, When it comes to the focus of this study, what particular materials are in, which ones did you focus on, and what materials are out? Which ones did you not even include in the study? When you talk about recycling materials, that can encompass so many things, tires and batteries and food waste that can be composted. We chose to cabin this study to recycling materials that the consumer would commonly find in packaging, glass, plastics aluminum, steel, paper, and cardboard, those kinds of things. The resolution asked you to consult with state and county officials as well as non-governmental entities. What kinds of things did you talk to them about? Well, Brian, we talked to, uh, we did talk to state and county officials and uh, non-governmental organizations. Typically, our questions for them were fairly similar. We asked them what kind of problems that they saw in our current uh, recycling system and uh, what they thought would be uh, solutions to those problems. Sometimes they were very specific to their county or interest. So it was enlightening to hear their take on things, even though we didn't necessarily need to get down to that kind of level of granularity in our study. For instance, a lot of the material recovery facilities, they have uh, difficulty with labor, obtaining people to simply operate their plants and trucks and stuff. They have to pay more. It's an added cost. Trucks cost more. Took a broader view of what they saw as their issues. And uh, that was an issue. We talked about the contamination for the material recovery facilities. That's a serious issue. That's one of the bigger problems. They know that it's an issue and they're working on it. Your answer makes me think of something that is probably important for us to define just generally is when we say contamination, what are you talking about in terms of recycling? You can only recycle certain items. You, know, you can't put anything in your recycling bin and take it to the curb. The waste management told us that they find all kinds of stuff like Christmas lights and bowling balls. So, you know, those things are all contamination. Contamination can be as simple as not washing out a can. Broken glass, that can be contamination. Uh, so it's anything that you don't want in your recycling stream. So, Grant, aside from the, the different government groups, municipal or county, 
Who did you meet with? Who were the experts that you met with during your research? Well, we met with Pennsylvania Waste Industry Association. I think they were the main non-governmental organization that we spoke to. We also spoke to a company called Encina. They uh, want to put an advanced recycling facility in the Danville area. So right now it's in the planning stages. It's not operational yet, but we spoke to them about advanced recycling because that was something we mentioned in the report. There was a um, statute passed in, uh, I believe, 2021 that would alter the regulatory framework to allow for more advanced recycling so they're not considered to be waste haulers and they're considered manufacturers instead. What advanced recycling is, is when you chemically break down the plastic into its component parts, into its component molecules, so they can be reformulated into fuel or new plastics, rather than, as we understand, plastic recycling now is where you kind of grind up uh, plastic bottles, you melt them, and then you just reform them into new bottles or other items. But those are the two main private entities that we spoke to. Grant, the resolution calls special attention to plastics and packaging. What makes those materials different from other forms of recyclables? Plastics are a more unique material from the other recyclables we studied because there's so many of them. They're more like a class. There's a bunch of different types of plastics. If you look on the bottom of a bottle, within the chasing arrow symbol, it will have a number. That tells you what type of plastic it is. It doesn't tell you about its recyclability. It just tells you the type of plastic it is. One is a PET, which is the most common in bottles. And that's also the most valuable as a recyclable material within the plastics group because it can be easily shredded and melted down and reformed into a new bottle. HDP is number two. That's usually milk jugs. And there's some other cosmetic containers that are number two, like shampoo. Those are also more recyclable. And then the other types of plastic are generally not recyclable. Although polypropylene, which is number five, it's kind of in the middle. It's sort of recyclable at some places. Most material recovery facilities will accept them, but whether or not they actually get recycled, it's kind of an up in the air thing. And then another issue is there's just so much plastic. They get a lot of it and it's fairly low value and its value fluctuates based on commodities markets, particularly commodities like oil and natural gas. So sometimes it might be cheaper just to make a new pet bottle than to buy recycled plastic and make a recycled plastic bottle. There's a lot of economics at play, a lot of shifting incentives. So sometimes it's cheaper to make a plastic bottle out of new material. Other issues are in 2018, China stated they were not going to allow the United States to export recyclables to them unless it met a very low contamination threshold. So that effectively stopped exports of our plastic to them. Materials recovery facilities had to change around their supply chains and try to find new buyers for the material. And for a short period of time, that issue kind of flowed downstream to the individual municipalities, some of which restricted what you could and could not recycle. Some of the MRS materials recovery facilities continue to accept plastic and they just kind of store it in a big warehouse. Some of them continue to accept it and then threw it in the garbage. Grant, as you know, I did some work mapping that appeared in the appendix of this project. And one of the things I noticed is that curbside recycling requirements are in part based on the town's population. Can you tell us more about this? That's right, Brian. Under uh, Act 101 of 1988, which is the primary statute that governs recycling in Pennsylvania, uh, municipalities greater than 10,000 in population or greater than 5,000 in population with population density of 300 persons per square mile 
uh, are required to have a curbside recycling program. So it is based on township population and the township is responsible for most of the recycling program. Although, as I mentioned earlier, the counties are somewhat involved. There's a county recycling coordinator, but most responsibilities are up to the municipality and municipalities that are not mandated to recycle can voluntarily have a curbside program. And many of them do. The Commonwealth had a goal that it set for 1997 of recycling a quarter of the the waste. Did we meet that goal? That's right, Glenn. There's a goal that is stated in the statute itself in Act 101 that they wanted the Commonwealth to hit 25% of all waste or source separated recyclable material to be recycled by 1997. And I would say yes and no. It depends on how you look at it. If you're looking at all waste generated, No, 25% of all waste generated was not recycled. But if you're looking at it from the perspective of materials that were thrown away, but could be source separated materials and recycled, the glass, plastic, aluminum, and steel cans and bottles, I would say, yes, we've hit that goal. We recycle a lot of our, we recycle a great deal of cardboard and aluminum cans, well in excess of 25%. I think the only one where Pennsylvanians are not recycling within that 25% frame is probably plastic bottles. But overall, it's probably with greater than 25%. Since the passage of Act 101 in 1988, the amount of trash per capita declined and the amount of items recycled, you know, in volume terms, continued to increase. Until very recently, we've had, um, I would say probably shortly after the Great Recession, is when we start to see waste volumes start to go back up and recycling volumes start to go back down, especially in the last few years where recycling has sort of fallen by the wayside in the aftermath of the pandemic. So to answer your question, it's yes and no, depending on your perspective. Generally speaking, Grant, what are the limitations on recycling data in the Commonwealth? Well, it has to do with the way the data is collected. Most recycling in the Commonwealth is what's called single stream recycling. That's where you put everything into one bin, you know, all your cardboard, all your steel cans, all your plastic bottles, and then it gets picked up by a truck and the truck goes to a materials recovery facility and they weigh it and they say, we have this many tons of single stream materials. Then it goes into the facility where it's sorted and bailed and then shipped out. All the weighing gets done kind of on the front end of that process. And by the time it gets to the materials recovery facility, they don't know how many tons of cardboard is getting thrown away, and they don't know which municipalities it's coming from or what street. They're not trained as data collectors. They're just trying to process the material as efficiently as possible. So when it gets reported to the counties, it just gets reported as single stream material, this many tons. A lot of the material that is reported, like when you see something that says we have this many tons of aluminum cans or this many tons of steel cans are getting that data from where it gets separated out, maybe at an earlier stage, or they weigh it at another point. So it's hard to gauge exactly how much is being recycled, at least from the residential standpoint, where they pick everything up at one time and and weigh it and report it as single stream material, because that could be anything in there. Okay, Grant, I have a, a question. It might be a little bit more of a science question. And something I learned from reading the report is that plastic can be used in steel and cement production. So can you explain what the purpose of plastic is in steel and cement production, but also if there are policies that would encourage more use of recycled plastics there? Sure thing, Glenn. In some places like Japan, they use waste plastic 
as a reducing agent in metallurgical processes in the same way that you would use coal because it's got a high caloric content. It's got a lot of carbon in it. So it could be used to make steel in the same way that for the same purpose as coal. Steel is an alloy of iron and carbon and plastic has carbon in it. It is possible to use it in that respect. It's part of their recycling policy and it's not technically recycling. It's, I guess, what you would call a beneficial use. In Japan, they use any type of plastic except for the uh, number one pet plastic uh, for that process. With regards to uh, cement kilns, that's more common. It's probably most common in developing countries where they have a lot of plastic and nothing to do with it. So they use it in the cement kilns as a source of fuel rather than a source of material, although the ash does sometimes end up in the concrete itself. That's done uh, in, in this country as well. It's not as common. There's some technical difficulties with that as well. You need to make sure you get the right amount of plastics and the right kinds of plastics at the right time because different plastics can can burn differently, but it is something that's done here. It's even done around here. I mentioned it in the report, but it's typically done to displace coal. Again, it has to do with the commodity prices. When coal is really expensive, it makes waste plastics an attractive alternative. And when coal is low, they're just going to use coal. But I would say plastic is a beneficial use for cement kilns because it displaces another fossil fuel that plastic was probably going to be thrown away anyway. It wasn't going to get made into a new plastic item. It was it was probably destined for either a landfill or uh, an energy recovery facility where they burn it to generate electricity, which is itself a sort of beneficial use. In terms of incentivizing it, I would say reducing regulations on it. And I think Pennsylvania has already done that. It's called permit by rule. Basically, if you comply with some rules, you have a permit to do it. The federal government also has regulations surrounding it, but I think because it's a beneficial use for an item that would otherwise be discarded, it would fall outside of the EPA's rule on using plastic in this way. So I, I would say in terms of incentivizing, it's, it's hard to say because it, it's really driven by the needs of the individual cement kilns and the market price for their main fuel, which is coal. Grant, in the report, you mentioned you reference extended producer responsibility statutes. Could you explain those to us a little bit? Extended producer responsibility laws are becoming more popular. They're common in Europe. And what they do is, is they require the, not necessarily the packaging manufacturers, but the producers of items that use packaging, plastic packaging in particular, uh, like Coca-Cola, uh, they require them to be in charge of collecting and recycling the their packaging, basically. There are two different ways that that can be done. The first way is for them to actually have for Coca-Cola to come by and pick up your bottle. Or the second way is for them, all of the producers to get together into one organization funded as a nonprofit organization that will be responsible for the recycling. Some of the extended producer responsibility rules in some places require payments to municipalities if the municipality is still in charge of recycling. Some of them will also moderate the fee that these individual packaging producers or product manufacturers have to pay into the organization based on things like how much are they producing in terms of how heavy is their individual packaging, is their packaging recyclable, things like that. France actually gets very complicated with their fee modulation. But in, in short, extended producer responsibility essentially means shifting the cost of recycling from communities to corporations. And several states in, in this country have passed laws that 
will enforce extended producer responsibility rules, but they're not enforced yet. So while we're talking about alternative strategies, a lot of people pay single rate fees for their trash, but the report also mentions an alternative, which is pay as you throw. Can you explain some of the benefits and maybe cons of that price scheme? Sure. Well, pay as you throw is a policy or program to charge for trash by the weight of trash that's discarded. This is another policy that's common in Europe and some other some other states in the United States also use it. There are two types of pay as you throw strategies, I guess you could say. One is to actually weigh the trash, which is kind of tough. And another way is to charge by the bag. In some places they sell like stickers or tags. You have to have a tag for each bag you throw out and then you pay per tag. So it's designed to discourage throwing things away and encourage recycling. But in some places and in some cases, yeah, people will just, instead of paying for an extra sticker, dump their trash somewhere they're not supposed to, or they'll take it to a public dumpster. Or uh, one study I read it from Europe uh, actually suggested that people were burning their trash in their yard. When they implemented pay-as-you-throw in, in one of these municipalities in Europe, the number of households reporting no trash kind of went up by a lot. So there's some uh, drawbacks and there's some some positives from it. It's, it's hard to say whether it actually increases recycling. It, it might marginally increase the amount of things that get recycled. But again, then that kind of ties back into contamination. Do you want to incentivize people to put things in the recycling bin that are probably questionable? Here in Pennsylvania, we don't mandate any municipality. Use pay as you throw. Some choose it as an option. And I think most of those that, who choose it as an option um, allow their residents to either choose to use the pay as you throw system or continue to pay a flat fee. Grant, are there things that the Pennsylvania legislature can do to promote and encourage more recycling? I would say yes. There are eight recommendations in the report that primarily are just tweaks around our existing framework, rather than making any large change in the way our system functions, some smaller changes could be useful. For instance, the recycling fee, which is the fee you pay to dump trash, has been $2 per ton since 1988. Well, $2 doesn't go as far today as it did in 1988. If you adjust for inflation, it would be about $5. So we recommend altering the fee over a course of years to $5. So we'll stagger it, you know. Uh, this would allow the recycling fund to make grant payments to municipalities to run their recycling programs. They're pretty dependent on recycling uh, grants uh, from the recycling fund, but the fund has been kind of flat funded or even declining recently, and that makes it harder to you know, make these programs make sense. Also, we recommended using some of the recycling fund money to provide drop-off recycling programs with a focus on communities that do not have access to curbside recycling. While I would say Pennsylvania does a good job of recycling, there's a lot of room for improvement. About 90% of our residents have access to recycling, but a lot of the state is left without that access. If you look at the maps that we have in the report, a lot of the suburban and urban counties have widespread recycling in their municipalities, but the center of the state is kind of left without recycling opportunities. So we recommended trying to get more recyclable material by bringing a drop-off recycling centers to areas that don't have them or are more rural in character. Are there any other recommendations you'd want to highlight? Another thing that we recommended is to increase the items 
that Act 101 municipalities are required to recycle. Right now, you, the municipalities who are mandated to recycle or voluntarily recycle only have to choose from a menu of eight items, and they can choose three of them. We recommended altering that to say that if the hauler or the uh, materials recovery facility will accept you know, any material, they have to recycle that material uh, with some exception. I think we accepted certain plastics and glass because of the low value and high cost of transporting glass. Let's say you're in an area where, or a municipality where your materials recovery facility will accept any material you send to them, you should accept in the recycling bin all of those materials with the exception of glass or uh, certain plastics. We also recommended breaking the plastics group into PET, HDPE, polypropylene, and other mixed plastics. So that way you can distinguish between the more valuable plastics and the waste plastics that are sometimes discarded. What this would do is we think it would increase the volume of materials that would make it to a materials recovery facility. So a municipality couldn't say, okay, we only accept clear green and amber glass or something like that and completely leave out aluminum cans or cardboard, even though they would be completely acceptable to whoever they're taking their glass to. Thank you for reviewing those recommendations with us. There are additional recommendations in the report. And if you're listening and you're interested in seeing them, please refer to the link that is in the show notes. Grant, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Thanks for having me. The music in our podcast is provided by Joseph McDade. Thank you for listening.